0: Take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to uh, Titus chapter 1. So we continue in our short series in this short book, looking at God's Word. Here, appropriate passage for us, qualifications for elders, as we have elections in just a couple of weeks, though that's not entirely the part I'm going to focus in on All right, here are all the pages done turning. We're going to start actually in verse 4 is where I'm going to start reading. So Titus chapter 1 starting in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Give life and light to our hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You probably remember the song, one of these is not like the others. One of these just doesn't belong. Or you probably can hear the tune in your head. I actually had to look up the lyrics because I don't remember the rest of it. Those are only two, uh, two lines that mattered, really. You learned that song from Sesame Street, most of you. Others, perhaps from Barney. I think he sang it, too. But uh, teaching children uh, this wonderful skill of being able to distinguish uh, commonality in some groups and difference in others. Here's three fruits and an automobile. Okay, one of these is not like the others. I can easily distinguish which one it is. One doesn't look like the rest always a fun little game to play with little ones to see how their brains work and uh, what um, connections and jumps they make as they try to figure it out. The passage that we're going to look at today, I I want that to kind of be in the back of our minds as we go to look at the qualifications for elders. Now, I think this is the third time I've taught this passage, or not this passage, this content in this church in roughly the last 15 months or so. Uh, part of it because, praise God, we're getting new officers, and that's a good thing. While well, assuming they get elected, that's a good thing, and we're happy for that. The Lord's blessing upon us. But I want to specifically look at the passage today kind of with that idea in the back of our minds of one of these is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Because kind of our, our starting point historically in the passage Is with an island in the Mediterranean, Crete. It's a a place that you would kind of love to live, uh, kind of most likely climate wise, um, aside from the constant earthquakes and periodic tsunamis and things like that. It's a lovely place to be. The weather's temperate, um, the soil is good, it's a wonderful place to live. However, uh, as people had spent time on that island and grown and developed, the culture uh, maybe had reflected uh, a culture that had lived on an island that was a perfect place to live for too long. Because, in fact, actually, a common saying of the day, one of the regular slogans in the culture around, if you skip down to verse 12, tells us what the nation of Crete was like, what the island was like, the people One of the Cretans, actually, you know that word? We still use that today, don't we? We use that to refer to somebody who's maybe not that intelligent or cultured or polished. Uh, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow, that is not the ringing cultural endorsement I'd like to have said about the place that I've grown up. You've grown up in Crete. You wouldn't, wow, that's uh, not a badge of honor that uh, you'd like to wear. Uh, one of those kind of, hmm, where are you from? I'm Crete. You're going to mumble your answer. Interestingly, though, at some point along the way, and as best we can guess, we think this letter is probably written um, kind of in between Paul's two imprisonments, uh, Paul has stopped in and started church planting on this island. It's not a big one. There's not a lot of people. There's not a whole lot of cities or towns, as we might call them today. Uh, But churches have started to grow. And the church has started to grow kind of in the midst of a culture that is defined by its evil, a people group who are known for being lazy, a people group who are known for being indulgent of their fleshly desires, a people group that is known for not always sticking to the truth, a people group that are known for being inventive in the ways of evil. It's actually, I think, really appropriate because, man, that sounds a lot like the place I live in now, doesn't it? sounds a lot like kind of our global reputation as a country, a country that's filled with people that are sometimes lazy and don't always like to work hard filled with a culture that worships our own sensual desires. We worship our own sexual preference. We worship that which makes us feel good, and you can't tell me any different. A nation that has a struggling relationship with the truth. I mean, just turn on the news for 10 minutes. Don't turn on the news for 10 minutes. It doesn't make your life any better. I mean turn on any politician speech actually don't turn on any politician speech a nation that doesn't really love the truth a nation that honestly if we're going to be candid if we I mean just really brutally honest we love ourselves and we love our pleasures that's it that's what we love we love ourselves and we love our pleasures we love the things that make us feel good emotionally We love the things that make us feel good physically. We love the things that make us feel good sexually. We love the things that make us feel good personally. We love our pleasures. And in in such a way, we're kind of perfectly situated to listen to a letter like this. That's the culture background. That's the, uh, one of these things is not like this. This is what the other things are. This is what everything in the land looked like in Crete. This was a people group who were known for this immoral type of living. And in the midst of that, Paul has sent Titus, one of his protégés, to go and try to pastor the churches on this island. Wow, what a task, huh? To come in and establish the churches that Paul has already planted and to build them up and to teach them to look different from the land around them to teach them how to live differently than the culture around them, to teach them how to be different from everyone else. And by that, we don't mean weird. This wasn't, you know, pastoral ministry on how to be obnoxious. I could teach that if I wanted to. I'm good at that. It's an effort to teach how to be holy how to live according to God's law, how to not be indulgent of self, but instead to be submissive to God. You see, that's actually kind of our starting point with how the the whole book begins. That's why I started in verse 4. You have this address to Titus. Titus, you are to be this pastor, my true spiritual child. We share a common faith. It's your task to go and do this ministry. And what's the, the foundation for it all? What's the beginning point? What's the starting point of the entire conversation? The grace of God and the peace that comes from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Pauline language to say the beginning point of a conversation in a culture that loves itself, that loves its pleasures, a culture that's actively killing itself with its own idolatry. The church's message does not begin with our ethics, what we should or shouldn't do. The church's conversation doesn't begin with our morality, what's right or wrong. The church's conversation doesn't begin with our ontology, what it means to be. (laughs) The church's conversation begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. One of these these things is not like the others. Uh, A people that begin their identity, that begin their belief, that begin their very life not on themselves, but on the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is this, friends, that at one point in your life, you too looked like everyone outside. That our lives at some point were not distinguishable. As different in any remarkable way, our gifting wasn't better, our beauty wasn't better, our humor wasn't better, there was no thing better about us. And in the midst of that, we dishonored the Lord in a myriad of ways, chasing after the things that gave us pleasure, either with our humor, or our identity, or making ourselves feel better about people telling us that they love us and that we're important. Chasing after those affirmations that help us make it through the day. Avoiding the pain that comes from living in a fallen world. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that brokenness, In the midst of that sin, in the midst of that sorrow, in the midst of those chasing after evil desires, in the midst of all of that that is wrong, the Lord steps in and grabs His child to make them new. From the inside out, replacing that which is unseen first, to then have consequence with that which is seen. The Lord always deals with the heart first, hoping the hands will follow in pastoral ministry. He freely gives the forgiveness of His Son to His people. Now, we live in a part of the country that has historically been very good about kind of talking about Christianity kind of as uh, almost like the Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Get-out-of-hell-free. You want not avoid hell. Here's how you do it. And honestly, there's a great, that's a great reason. I mean, hell is terrible. I don't want to go there. You shouldn't either. But sometimes kind of Southern Christianity has not done a very good job of discussing kind of the rest of the story which is to say God's wrath is a big deal and needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. But the, the gospel in its very essence, the, the very consequence of it, the, the very reality of what God is doing is by necessity transformative. Meaning that when the Lord comes in and takes out your heart of stone and places in that new living heart, And when the Lord gives you His Spirit to live inside you and to unite you to Christ Jesus, when the Lord gives you His very power being worked out in you and through you and He's united you to Himself by His love, you cannot help but be different. You can't help it. It's totally new. You see, again, kind of in southern Christianity, we've done a good job of talking about the gospel as it's a chance to get out of hell. But the problem is that when the going gets tough, that doesn't actually carry us very far. And we haven't done a good enough job talking about one of these things is not like the other's. One of these things just doesn't belong. That, that definitively, when the Lord works in a person's life, He is making them different. And that cannot be avoided, though it can be fought against. Verse 4 kind of gives us this blessing statement of the gospel given to Titus. His ministry is based upon it. His efforts are built upon it. And then verses 5 through 9 is an explanation of some of the ways that the church is different from everything else. Some of the ways that Christians are supposed to uh, live in light of the redeeming work of Christ and to showcase the world, we're different we're unique as some of the ways that we are to display God's character, to display His values. Very briefly, we'll look at just a handful of these, though not individually. First, the consequence of the gospel, first one we see in the passage, is that it transforms a Christian's relationship to leadership. And takes it from a power struggle to a wholesome thing. It changes the Christian's relationship to leadership. It's interesting. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace in God the Father, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Here is uh, God's power, God's gospel to you. Verse 5, now I, Paul, give to you, Titus, your mission in Crete. What are you supposed to do? What's the most important thing that's left to do? And again, this kind of shows where we're at as a culture and sometimes as Christians today. We think, well, if they know Jesus, praise God, they motor on. Let's go. Go, go, go evangelize. Great. Glory, hallelujah. Or, you know, go, go improve your worship together. Okay, praise God. Go, go write a new hymnal or, you know, figure out how to put the Psalms into metrical order. Great. Okay, wonderful. What does he do, actually, interestingly? Go establish Leadership. This is why I left you in Crete. This is why you're even here, Titus. This is your job as a pastor. That you might put what remained into order. There's a task that's left that hasn't been finished. And that task is to appoint elders in every town as I directed to you. So what he's articulating here is functionally kind of using our current language today. Paul the Apostle has tasked Titus the Evangelist to finish the church planting efforts in Crete. And the way that Titus the Evangelist is to finish the church planting in Crete is to go to all of the various towns, to the various churches, and to ordain elders so that the elders can run the church. Because that's how God has designed the church to function. That's that's the appropriate thing. It's, It's the good way to do it which is such an interesting kind of statement because uh, here in the South, we, t- we, t- we push back on that, don't we? Like, I, I want to be my own boss. I, I want to run my own church. I want to be my own. You can't tell me how to think. Or we have the Christian version of that to say, well, we have the priesthood of all believers, which is true. That's not what's being talked about here, but it's true. It's interesting no, though, that, that the Lord is actually saying that in order for the church in a fallen world to be healthy, now this will go away in the life to come. We don't have elders in, in heaven, new heavens new earth, but the church in a fallen world, as part of the way she is designed to operate, is for her to have some that govern over other, over, govern over others. That was a really hard sentence to get out for some reason. And that it's not supposed to be kind of this exploitive, exploitative kind of power-based, nasty sort of relationship, but a reflection of God's designed order that He has appointed some to rule over others and for us all to be submissive to someone and to Christ. You see, this kind of, again, It flies in the face of the cultural moment that we live in. The current cultural moment that we live in now is everybody wants to be their own boss. They want to be their own king. They want to be their own God. They want to be the one who is in charge of everything. That the individual gets to determine what they believe. The individual gets to determine what's right and wrong. The individual gets to determine what is true and what's not. The individual gets to determine everything, and I find it just so intriguing that the Lord's idea for how the church is to be is like, no, no. It's never been about the individual running the show. It's been about the church corporate and the Lord governing His church through His officers. That relationship is holy and sacred and important and good and right and true. It's one of the reasons why in two weeks when we do officer elections, it's such an important thing. God is calling men to lead His church, and He's calling all of us to be submissive to those that are elected in some fashion, and submissive to the presbytery, and submissive to the denomination, as long as we are in it. That's why we have a vow for all of those It's one of the ways that we as Christians get to look different than the world. We respect authority. We're obedient to authority. We trust the Lord to govern through authority and protect us even when they fail. And that's a hard thing. I mean, living in the state that we live in, we kind of started some of the unpleasantness in the past saying, hey, no, yeah, no. You can't govern us. We're ungovernable. Go down, look at your museums in Charleston. It's the history of this great state. And interestingly, kind of the opposite is true for what Christians are supposed to be. We are supposed to be those that are the easiest to govern, not the hardest. It's very trendy in kind of internet circles now to try to brand yourself as ungovernable. And friends, I would say lovingly that if you're doing that, you're not pursuing the pattern that Christ has laid out which is for us to be those that have a wholesome relationship with governance both inside and outside the church, though this is specifically addressed at the church. Now, obviously, the danger here, you can see, is that anybody would get in and then exploit uh, abuse those that are under their authority. And in fact, actually, God knows that, and he addresses the issue Immediately. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the church is to be governed by God Almighty through His appointed men, through His elders. That is how God governs the church today. So what kind of men are these supposed to be? What, what is kind of the consequence of the gospel for church leadership? Well, we're going to look at just three briefly. One of the consequences of the gospel, the work of Christ and the church leadership, is that the church leadership are both committed to and practicing a biblical sexual ethic. This is interesting because in every description of church leadership, this is in some fashion included. That in order to be a leader in Christ's church, you have to be both committed to intellectually, but also practicing a biblical sexual ethic. You have the, in verse 6, the kind of blanket statement that covers it all, the theme statement. A man must be above reproach. There must be no questions in regards to his sexual character, his character in general, but specifically in this verse, his sexual character. He is to be the husband of one wife. The literal here is a one-woman man. He's the kind of man who is marked by sexual faithfulness. Fidelity governs his life in his relationships, but particularly in that relationship that is most sacred. He has committed to his wife and lives in holiness accordingly. Again, One of these is not like the others. What what a difference in the world today. What a difference in the world today where our politicians commit abominations every which way. Just yesterday, day before yesterday, I actually watched the... uh, don't know how I'd missed this, a speech from one of our politicians in another state who years ago had gotten busted for having an affair with his campaign manager's wife, and watching him try to minimize and kind of sidestep the damage of sleeping with his own campaign manager's wife. He's now governor and has been for the last decade in one of the most influential states in the Union. Our current kind of cultural moment sees kind of, again, sexual practice as being whatever you want it to be. Live however you want to live. Do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. That's directly in contrast to that which what God lays out, that His people, but especially His leaders, but His people are to be committed to a biblical sexual ethic. One man one woman, one relationship, so long as they both shall live. That union, should the Lord bless it in such a thing, should produce offspring. And that sexual Holiness then governs the family itself. Fidelity and faithfulness are marks of this man's life so that even his children are those that live as those that are faithful. Now, the language here in the English is hard to get exactly right from the Greek. Your ESV does a good job of saying even his children are believers, but they have the little footnote for you. And what this means is you can't make your children be Christians, but you can keep them from living like hellions. You can't make them believe, but especially when they're small. You can make them stop being a fool. You can control behaviors when they're little, though not their hearts. And in fact, that's what's happened here. The children live a faithful kind of lifestyle. They live as a way that a believer would, and the children themselves are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The kids themselves are so faithful in at least the external part of their life, that the man's fidelity is not put into question. It's one of the weird parts of my job, is that in order for me to meet my job description, it doesn't just come down to my skills. It doesn't matter only how much I know the Bible and can I explain the Bible. It even includes how I treat my wife And how my children live. Because this is, again, the reality of what God's doing. In a a world that says your behavior doesn't ultimately matter as long as it doesn't hurt somebody, the Lord Himself is going a different way to say, no, all behaviors matter. Because they're the consequence of God's good grace. And in fact, your sexual practice isn't even your decision. The Lord designed it, and it is to be devoted unto Him belongs to him. It's an act of obedience to him. Boy, that's a different way to think about the marital bed than our culture talks about, isn't it? To think about the marital bed specifically as being an act of obedience to God. That when it's not being done when it can be, that's disobedience. And when it's being used incorrectly or without proper fidelity, that's disobedience. Again, this is uh, what is being described for all of God's people. This is how we are all supposed to live, but mandatory for elders. We are to fly in the face of our cultural moment that says you can be whatever you want to be and do what you ever want to do, and instead have to say, no, we are committed to living the Bible, even in our sexual preferences. It doesn't stop with that. Verse 6, verse 7 and 8, you have, again, the second kind of catch-all, the the grammatical construction here. You have uh, the above reproach phrase, thrown again, thrown in again to provide kind of your category here for a man whose holiness isn't just contained to his family, but works out through the entirety of his person in some fashion. And in fact, you would be able to say that his passions are governed by God in some fashion. That's what's being described in verse um, 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 is that his passions in some fashion are grounded in God. And I I don't simply mean the desires here, but the way that his personhood is worked out. Verse 7, an overseer is God's steward. Now that word there again is kind of housekeeper. Um, The elders are entrusted as God's housekeepers in His church. The church belongs to Christ. He's the Lord and head of the church, but we are His under-shepherds. We're the ones who are kind of taking care of it uh, until He returns. Uh, That's our our mission. It doesn't belong to us. Again, there's that clause, must be above reproach. That's your heading, the the overarching kind of catch-all thematic statement. But then what works underneath it? One of these is not like the others. This is what Christianity looks like, good Christian living. He's not arrogant. He's not dominated by his pride. He's not quick-tempered. He's not dominated by his anger. He's not a drunkard, dominated by his drink or inability to face hard truths. He's not violent, dominated by a lack of concern or care for the well-being of others. He's not greedy for gain, dominated by his own profit, but instead he's hospitable. He, he is looking out for even the well-being of others that they feel comfortable to be in his presence. He's welcoming. He's a lover of good, not evil. He's self-controlled, upright, upright. Holy and disciplined. What a contrast from what kind of, again, our cultural moorings are currently. We live in the greatest nation on earth and what I personally believe is the greatest state in the greatest nation on earth. And even in this great state, in this great nation, can you imagine if in our next mayoral race, we had a candidate who just put hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined as the platform they were running on. That was it. Maybe, in fact, actually, when they got into the debate and had a chance to, you know, speak about it publicly, they said, well, my, my political platform is to speak against arrogance, being quick-tempered, drunkenness, violence, and greed. Does that candidate get elected? Does, if that was for president, does that candidate even make it out of the primaries? Does that candidate make it past the first primary? <laughs> No! I mean, while that person would be wonderful, though, I mean, first thought all of us would have would be your politician, so I don't think you're telling the truth. But secondly, like that's not what our nation values. We, we don't love those things. We, we love greed. We hate being self-controlled. We don't like discipline. We like being able to live as flamboyantly and uh, boisterously and sinfully as we possibly can. We, we don't care. We don't want to be hospitable. We we want, to, we want to be grumpy toward other people, and it's all their fault. It's interesting that what you have presented here is what does the, the Christian look like? Is it's a person that's well-ordered in their relationships with the world around them. A person who's well-ordered in their money, who's well-ordered in their relationship with alcohol, a person who's well-ordered in their relationship with their temper, a person who's well-ordered with their frustrations, a person who has their life well-ordered. There's a, a word that would fit this very well, a biblical word that as Americans we tend to misunderstand, the word peace. In America, when we use the word peace, we mean the absence of conflict. But that's not how the Bible uses that word. The Bible uses the word, particularly the Old Testament, shalom, as the idea of things functioning the way they're supposed to. If you've ever seen like a video of a a high-end watchmaker to to open the watch and to see all of the tiny like little minute little gears all spinning at the exact right speed so that everything perfectly fits and the tiny little cogs that are so small that you can't even discern what they are without a magnifying glass. It all fits together perfectly and when it's done correctly all of the gears and gizmos work to tell the time exactly right. That's probably a better illustration of what the Bible means by peace, is that all the gears and gizmos rightly align with the motors and the batteries and the hands and everything spinning in the proper balance so that it works correctly. And what a contrast with a culture that wants to live pleasure after pleasure after pleasure To say that, no, when God's at work, we have a life that's balanced and grounded and governed by God. And then the final thing here, just very quickly, biblical sexual ethic, a grounded personhood in the work of God. But three is he has to know the truth and be able to teach it. That's the minimum kind of (laughs) minimum requirement for the elder is you have to know the Word of God. Why? Because it's not our desires that govern the day. It's, it's not our preferences that set what are right and wrong. Morality is not determined by what you think. It's determined by what God says. And so the elder and the Christian must know, must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as it has been taught by Paul, as it has been written by uh, the authors of Scripture, so that these men and all Christians would be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. You have to know the Word. You have to know what the Bible actually says. Minimum requirement for officers encouraged for all Christians. Because again, what this is setting us up for is to to have a portrait of a person that looks very different from the world in which we live. The world in which we live is, is encouraging people to pursue whatever makes them feel good. And interestingly, what is being presented here is the portrait of a person who has been changed by the Spirit of God And that transformation has been worked out in their sexuality, it's been worked out in their family, it's been worked out in their temper, it's been worked out in their finances, it's been worked out in their alcohol, it's been worked out even in their understanding of what truth is and where truth is to be found. So that God governs who they are. Now I will end with just a couple of brief applications very quickly. One, When you elect elders, and I would even say deacons as well, make sure they're good and godly men. Make sure they're good and godly men. Now, I've already told you in the announcements who our four guys are up for election. Uh, You should know who those guys are before the election in two weeks. Please go talk with them. Have a conversation with them. Ask them about the Bible. Ask them about who they are. Ask them, because it's your job to vote for them. I don't get to put them in I'm, this is not, I'm not a pope that gets to install them. I'm not Evangelist Titus. I haven't been given that power. Y'all elect them. Go talk to them. Secondly, there is a logical flow to the passage that the, the gospel transforms people, but then transformation becomes kind of this all-consuming thing that works out in the life of the person. We talked about this in Sunday school from the First Corinthians 6 passage, and such were some of you. It's the way that God works is when when Christ comes into your life, he makes you new and change happens. And I would, as part of that then, as a faithful pastor, hopefully, uh, give you just a touch of warning to say that if you don't see change happening in your life, that is a point of concern. Now, it's a point of concern in one of two ways. One It could be a point of concern because you actually are changing but are unwilling to see the work that God is doing. That's a possible. I know those people that the Lord's making them new and he's radically transforming them and habits are being transformed and they're a different person than they were last year and they're still committed to being grumpy about where they were last year. If that's you, friend, repent, be thankful for God's redeeming work. Second kind of category that might be concerned is that for some of us, we might not see change, and the reason for that is because we might not be trying. We might be in that category of that kind of classic Southern Christian that says, I love Jesus because he gets me out of hell, but it doesn't impact how I live. He changes how I die, but he doesn't change how I live. And friends, if you're in that category, I worry Because it's a logical consequence that if the Spirit is present, He will change you. I would ask and encourage that you stop fighting against Him and embrace His work. Because our calling as Christians is to be, the Sesame Sesame Street song doesn't get it terribly wrong. One of these things is not like the others. We're called to be different than everything else out there. And the only way we can be different is if the Spirit of God is at work within us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We ask that You would forgive us for sin and that You would equip us to live a new life. For Christ's sake, amen.